Thank you, Millard, for that Fourth of July medley. Appreciate it, brother. I'm going to do something a little different this morning that we haven't done and maybe have never done here on a Sunday morning. Uh, maybe have done a couple times in small groups. But uh, Andrew, would you uh, you bring up the uh, the water and the towels? And uh, we're going to learn this morning about washing one another's feet. Thank you, Andrew. Now, it's interesting from my perspective here, the nervous giggles, the uh, can he really mean this? Is he really serious? How uncomfortable the idea of washing one another's feet makes us. It's interesting to look look around here, and uh, some of you are probably looking for the ushers to see if they've got holes in water, too. So let me put your mind at ease right now. We're not going to actually wash any feet this morning. But it's interesting as we think about this theme, as I prepared, one of the things that I wondered is why does this idea of literally washing one another's feet make us so uncomfortable? How many have ever been part of a foot washing service? A lot of us probably have. Well, the the cultural context of foot washing in scripture is that it was needed because people walked almost everywhere, they wore sandals, Their feet got really dirty. There were no sidewalks or paved roads. It was a dusty time to live in, okay? One reason it makes us uncomfortable is because no one washes someone else's feet these days. About the only exception that we might see to that uh, is babies. We wash babies' feet, right? Or maybe the physically or mentally handicapped. It's a very unnatural and incredibly awkward to do. Steve, I'm going to give up on this mic. It seems like it's cutting out, isn't it? Okay, let's just use the podium mic and I'll just stay close to home here. The literal washing of feet, however, is not a particularly good example of what Jesus did when we consider the cultural context, the example that he set for us. Now, if we focus on making this about foot washing, what Jesus did, Uh, we can miss the point of what he was doing. So that's why we're not going to have people come up and get their feet washed this morning. We have to find modern-day equivalents. Even today, there are certain people who do certain kinds of things and certain people who don't. It was true in Jesus' day, and it's true now. I see that in nursing homes, for example. Certain people change soiled linen and help old folks to the bathroom, and others don't. In Jesus' day, foot washing was beneath even the Jewish slaves. It was reserved for Gentile slaves to do. It was something regular people just didn't do. Think of the most menial chores that you can think of, or perhaps the most humbling chores. How about cleaning someone else's toilet? How about changing an adult diaper for someone who's unable to do so for him or herself? How about cleaning a closet for someone else? Certainly we can think of hundreds of other examples. Are we washing feet, for example, when we take a meal to someone who's sick? When we help a family move their belongings or clean out their underwear or their sock drawer? Help with weekly shopping, provide transport for someone else, or give our support in a time of crisis or around a death? Or how about when we help feed someone who can't feed themselves? Are we washing feet when we encourage the mentally ill? 
Are we washing feet when we're patient with the angry, when we spend time with the broken or the lonely? Or how about when we help someone get rid of bed bugs? Are we washing feet when we do that? It's interesting to note that many of these humble things that we can think of doing still involve cleaning of some sort. Not all of them, but some of them do. And often these kinds of things make both the doer of the deed and the person on the receiving end both uncomfortable. If I were to ask somebody to come up here and let me wash their feet this morning, you'd be very uncomfortable, and I probably wouldn't find a volunteer. But I'd be uncomfortable, too, as the one washing the feet. If you change my diaper, I promise you, that will make both you and me very uncomfortable. Jesus made his disciples very uncomfortable, too. And I hope to make all of us just a little bit uncomfortable here this morning as we consider this theme. Not because we're going to have a foot washing, because again, I want to set your mind at ease, we're not. But because Jesus turned expectations upside down. And the expectations he set for his disciples on that night have not changed for us today. Even though we don't wash feet anymore, as in Jesus' day, because it was a necessity then. The standard of service that he set for them that night is what we want to look for today. It's the same standard he would want us to aspire to as his followers today. Jesus turned the standards, he turned the norms of the day upside down. He showed them symbolically that head first was not important. That is being important, being above certain duties, but that feet first was important. Let's read the passage where we uh, learn this from Jesus in John chapter 13. There's 17 verses here, so hang with me. If you have your Bibles, you might want to read along. John 13, beginning with verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There were four primary reasons that we see Jesus doing here what he did in that upper room with his disciples. He had four primary reasons for washing his disciples' feet. We see that in verses 1 and 2, it was to testify of his love for his disciples. We see in verses 3 through 5, to demonstrate his own voluntary humility. And voluntary is a key phrase there. Nobody made Jesus do this. Third, he wanted to signify a spiritual washing. We see that in verses 6 through 11. And then finally, he wanted to set an example for us, his disciples that night, and for us a couple thousand years later to follow. We see that in the remainder of the passage, verses 12 through 17. One of the things I noticed as I read through this passage is that this is interesting to me. Jesus was in complete control. He was in complete control. Three times it says that he knew something. John made a point to tell us what he knew. He knew, first of all, we see in verse 1, that his time had come. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. The next time is in verse 3. Jesus knew that God had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And the final time in this passage that we see what Jesus knew is in verse 11. Jesus knew who was going to betray him. He knew all about Judas' plan. Think about that. Now, if you absolutely know something in advance, you know that something's going to happen, you feel like you have a little bit of a measure of control over that situation, over what happens next, don't you? That puts you in a position of power, it puts you in a position of strength. And that's why, if you think about it, certain kinds of foreknowledge are illegal today. Like, how about insider trading in the stock market? Because knowledge of certain facts unfairly equips you to profit from that. But rather than cause Jesus to demonstrate that authority, to demonstrate that power, that knowledge that he had, Jesus responded differently. I think he responded differently than most of us would have. He was confident in God's plan. He was confident in the purposes that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had set in place before the beginning of time. With the kind of knowledge and understanding Jesus had that night, would you, would I, be likely to do something as humbling and uncomfortable as wash someone else's feet? I'll speak for myself. You don't have to speak for yourself. But I'd say, no, probably not. If I had that kind of power, if I knew what Jesus knew, not just that knowledge, but that power, it says he knew that God had put all things under his power. And all things is pretty encompassing, isn't it? This divine self-consciousness of Jesus, confronted with the final assault here of the devil, directed through The devil's instrument, Judas, showed itself not in a sovereign display of omnipotence, but in an amazing act of self-humiliation. Why is that? Why is that? How could Jesus stoop so low when he knew so much about what was to come? He knew he had the power to do anything he wanted in that moment. He knew it, but he chose to serve, and not just to serve but to do so in an incredibly humble, even humiliating way. 
I think part of the answer to this question is how could he do this? Why would he do this? We see the answer at the end of verse 1. He now showed them the full extent of his love. Other versions say he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the utmost degree. Another vital point to remember about this is that Jesus taking on a menial task and serving his disciples to show them his love for them did not change who he is. It did not change who he is. Jesus knew this. Taking off his outer garment like a slave would and washing his disciples' feet did not change any of the reality of who Jesus is. He was still, he is still the King of Kings. He is still the Lord of Lords. He is the maker of the universe. He was still God in the flesh. In fact, that very understanding that he was still these things and nothing about what he did changed who he was makes this example all that much more powerful to us. He didn't worry about how this would make him look. Oh, gee, if I did this, it might make me look weak. It might make me look powerless. He didn't worry about how it would make him look. He wasn't concerned about how maybe this would somehow undermine his authority, doing something so menial, so humble. As we look at this passage, it's important for us to remember the context. Remember, this took place in what we call the Last Supper. It was Jesus that day setting in place what we celebrate as communion today, what we celebrate every Sunday here at TCF. An important facet of this story is an interesting thing that happened. It's a dispute the disciples had, and in retrospect from our vantage point, it's a pretty ironic dispute since we know what happened next. So before this scene at the Last Supper that we just read from, The disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. Now, isn't that the ultimate irony? Luke's account tells of that happening. Matthew and Mark both tell of other instances in which the disciples were apparently jockeying for position and power. And Jesus corrected them. For example, just give you one example from Mark 10. Jesus said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. It's what Jesus had taught more than once. But still, we see the disciples didn't get it. Now, we don't want to pick on the disciples because a lot of times we don't get it either, do we? It takes kind of pounding these kinds of things into us. They were still concerned with power. They were still concerned with their position, with their authority. Hey, we're the disciples, man. We're going to be pretty big. We're going to be pretty powerful, right? Finally, what did he do? He used contrast to teach. He showed them a powerful example of what he had been trying to say to them. He was confident that he knew who he was. He was the greatest. He was the all-powerful God. Yet he, the master, the teacher, the Lord, washed their feet. Matthew Henry said, our infirmities, our faults, our failures, our shortcomings, are foils to Christ's kindness and set them off. You know what it means to set something off? It's by contrast. It's set apart. It's, it's so different that it's set off, and the contrast makes the point. Even set against Judas' betrayal, if we look at verse 2, why make the point that Judas was already set to betray Jesus? At least one reason, again, is to show the contrast. Judas 
had his feet washed by Jesus too. Even treachery and betrayal could not quench his love. If you knew, if you knew, like Jesus did, that somebody was going to betray you, in fact, had already done so, would you still love? Would you still serve? Again, I'll speak for myself, probably not. Hey, they blew it. Don't want anything to do with them. Again, Jesus' love is focused. It's magnified by this contrast. In case, here in this case, it's in contrast with Judas' absolute act of betrayal. And in contrast with the disciples who were just moments before grasping for power and authority. Hey, I'm the big guy. No, no, you're going to be the big guy. I'm going to be the big guy, right? Jesus' example taught his disciples and taught us the virtue of humility and service in a way they could not forget. But as we continue in this account, we see that they still did not understand. And that brings us to Peter's response. Now, we have a tendency, I think, sometimes to pick on Peter. He's the easy target sometimes. But I think often Peter's just the one that Jesus uses to make a point. I don't know if it's because any of the other disciples had any other better grasp of what Jesus was doing there. We certainly don't hear them speaking up after what Jesus said to Peter. They're probably sitting there thinking, I'm not going there. Uh Uh-uh, not me. I think we also have the tendency to be hard on Peter because we need to learn the same things that Peter had to learn. Verse 7 is a key verse. Jesus says to his disciples in this verse, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Remember how we talked about Jesus turning norms, turning standards and expectations upside down. Now, you and I have the benefit of 2,000 years of reading the word and studying the word to know this. But for Peter, this was really a pretty new concept. The boss, the big guy serving the underlings, Yet though we have the benefit of this account and many other biblical examples that teach the same basic idea, it's still unusual to see true servant leadership in our culture. Those in power seldom serve those without power so humbly. There are certain things that it is somehow demeaning and beneath you to do. Selflessly serving does not come naturally to us. It's one of those things that the Holy Spirit can build in us. Most of us look for ways out of doing menial tasks rather than for ways to do them. One of the things that so encouraged me these past several weeks was watching so many TCFers do things in preparation for the VBS, doing these things without any attention seeking. They were doing them behind the scenes, so to speak. Things like cutting out palm leaves and crumpling paper and making decorations. It blessed me. It isn't glamorous, but it's serving. It's humbly serving. Even more than that, as Joel mentioned, taking down decorations and cleaning up at the end, which several dozen or a couple dozen at least TCFers did on Friday afternoon, that's even less glamorous. You know, putting up the Christmas tree is kind of fun. Taking it down and putting the stuff away is not nearly as much fun. Yet it's hard to pick on Peter here when people, including some of us believers, still struggle with the same thing today, still struggle with humbly serving in ways that maybe we don't really just want to do. And it's that much more remarkable when we do, in fact, see people selflessly serving. 
Three things we should notice here. Jesus is saying something really important. One of the things he says in verse 7 is, you don't understand now. Think about that. We don't always understand right now why God does things the way he does them, do we? Sometimes, maybe often, they don't make sense to us. Why are you doing things this way? They go against the grain. They go against the normal way, or at least the way we think we're so smart that we would do them if we were God, right? We've come to expect things to be done in certain ways, and this applies in many areas of life. And then he says, but you will later. There is a purpose, is what he was telling them. There is a purpose. You don't see it now, but I do. That's what Jesus was saying. Someday you will see it, and it will be like the light bulb that goes on in your head. You will understand. That day will come. Now, that someday may be in this lifetime. It may not. But you will understand. That day will come. You will understand someday. And he says to Peter in verse 8, when Peter says, you won't wash my feet, he says, unless you let me do this thing, you have no part or no share with me. Sometimes we just have a hard time with the way God does things in our lives. And so we refuse it. And in so doing, we refuse him. It's almost as if we believe that it can't possibly be God doing this. Why, why God would allow something like that? Why would he do it this way? We need to learn to receive from the Lord. And often that means we need to learn to receive from others, even when it's humbling, even when it's embarrassing. One commentary noted Jesus did this to test their submission and implicit obedience that they might learn to acquiesce or to submit in his will even when they could not understand it. In other words, God, I don't understand why you're doing this. And I sure don't understand why you're doing it this way. It doesn't make sense to me. It makes me very uncomfortable. But because it's you, I will submit to you. Fortunately for his disciples, and fortunately for us, Jesus explained all this at the end of this passage. Let me read verses 12 through 17 of this passage again. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Jesus, by humbling himself, has dignified humility. By humbling himself, Jesus dignified Humility. It's interesting to note that in verse 13, he said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. This is really the first time we see in the New Testament that Jesus fully embraced and fully accepted these titles. At previous times in the gospel, he might have acknowledged them, but not completely. And he did that again to show the contrast, to show the contrast. Yes, I am the Lord, but I am among you as one who serves. If I, the Lord, Jesus said, if I, the Lord, can serve you, you should do the same to one another. 
even I did not come to be served, but to serve. So here again, we see in turning norms upside down, Jesus challenged our standards. One of TCF's early pastors was Chuck Farah. Many of you remember Chuck. He used to tell the story of his experience with the Navigators. And as a young man, he was fresh from a British university with a PhD, a lot of great credentials. And he went to work at the Navigators. And he thought that with all of his knowledge and all of his credentials, that he'd be put to work doing something pretty important, pretty substantial. But Chuck tells the story that his first jobs at the Navigators headquarters in Colorado Springs were cleaning toilets. And one of his first jobs was actually digging the grave of Dawson Trotman, the founder of Navigators, who had just died. Pretty humbling for a man with a PhD who came in with higher expectations. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. But Chuck admitted that this was something that the Lord needed to teach him. And so that's why he told that story on himself. There's a man named Henry Nguyen, and he was the pastor at a place called Daybreak. That's a community for people with mental and physical disabilities. For more than 10 years, he served in that role. But before that, he taught at Yale. He taught at Harvard and Notre Dame. He published numerous books, and he was viewed as one of the leading Christian scholars and writers in the world. Now, in this community, those with the disabilities who live there are referred to as core members. And the non-disabled who work there are called assistants. We talk about turning the standards and the norms upside down. As one of the assistants put it, we learn more and more about how we have to change by living with and caring for these people. In a place like this, there is no glamour. Only the humble giving of self day in and day out in the nitty-gritty of serving the disabled. There was probably some real-life foot washing happening there. But assistants in this community genuinely saw and see their work as part of the work of the kingdom of God, and they gave all they had in caring for one another. Often we classify Christian service just like we classify other kinds of work in the world. We look at, uh, there's a hierarchy, right? You have the, the CEO or the president or the director, and then you have stair-step down, right, as terms of authority. Here at TCF, we might tend to think of missionaries as a more substantial, more spiritual kind of worker in the kingdom. We might think the calling to preach is more important in service than other things. Well, Oswald Chambers, many of you know Oswald Chambers, the writer of My Utmost for His Highest, he wrote of this idea, this idea of the hierarchy of service and how we look at things. He wrote that ministering as opportunity surrounds us does not mean selecting our surroundings. It means being very selectly gods in any haphazard surroundings which he engineers for us. The characteristics that we manifest in our immediate surroundings are indications of what we will be like in other surroundings. Think about that. He continues, The things that Jesus did were of the most menial and commonplace order, and this is an indication that it takes all God's power in me to do the most commonplace things in his way. Can I use a towel as he did? Towels and dishes and sandals are the ordinary things of our lives which reveal more quickly than anything what we are made of. He continues again, watch the kind of people God brings around you and you will be humiliated to find that this is his way of revealing to you the kind of person you have been to him. 
Now he says, exhibit to that one exactly what I have shown to you. Oh, you say, I will do all that when I get out into the foreign field or when I get to be a minister or when I get to do this kind of ministry or that kind of ministry. To talk in this way is like trying to produce the munitions of war in the trenches. You will be killed while you are doing it. We have to go the second mile with God. Some of us get played out in the first 10 yards because God compels us to go where we cannot see the way. And we say, I will wait till I get nearer the big crisis. If we do not do the running steadily in the little ways, we shall do nothing in the crisis. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? That leaves us with the last verse in our passage this morning, verse 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. When God's promises are listed, how often do you hear this one? Blessed are they who stoop and obey. I'm not sure I've heard that anywhere, especially on TV or the radio. Though it's a great advantage to know our duty, we miss God's best if we don't follow through and do our duty. We read in James chapter 4, verse 17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Jesus showed us that God, our great God, is an approachable God. After all, why else would he do something so menial, so humbling as wash feet? Jesus says he came to serve the Father, to do his will. What has God asked you to do? Is it something that doesn't match your idea of ministry? So you might want to say, I'll do that when I get to this point in my life, but not now, because not now. I think of two guys I knew who were so driven to become pastors that doing almost anything else they considered to be beneath them. If I was a betting man... I would bet that God will never put them in a pastoral kind of ministry because they haven't learned to serve where they are in whatever God has put in their path. And if they did somehow gain a position of church leadership without a change of heart, I believe it would be a disaster. We see this embracing of status and power and authority a lot in the church at large. We see men with titles like apostle and bishop and prophet, and these titles are wielded like uh, badges of authority. Pastors who have men who carry their Bible for them or open the car door for them. I know I've heard of these stories. I love that here at TCF, I'm just Bill. Joel is just Joel. I'm not Pastor Bill. He's not Elder Joel. Let me add this aside, which actually relates to our topic here this morning. In a few weeks, we're going to announce to you which brothers in this church have agreed to take on the responsibility of joining the elders' council. One of the many things that we believe the Lord used to commend these brothers to us is that they are humble servants. I really believe that if we ask any of these brothers to clean toilets, that they would do it. They clearly have leadership ability, or I don't believe the Lord would have us see them necessarily as potential elders, but they have not sought position or power or authority. Instead, they've been servants. I thought it was important for the congregation to know that before you even hear who these brothers are, that these brothers have modeled the kind of leadership that Jesus did in our passage this morning. 
and wait until these brothers find out that at their first elders meeting they need to bring a water basin and a towel to wash the elders' feet. <laughs> kind of an initiation thing. Just kidding. Just kidding. Not really. <laughs> As we pray this morning, I'd like you to ask yourself if there are things you've considered beneath you to do. Because you don't understand it, maybe. Because you're too proud. Because it grosses you out. Because you're afraid of doing, how doing this thing might change what people think of you. Or you think, you know, God's got something bigger and better for me and more important, and you're waiting for that to happen before you begin to serve where he has you. Remember that washing his disciples' feet, stooping to serve, doing something he wasn't quote-unquote supposed to do, didn't change who Jesus is. He's still God. Serving didn't change who Henry Nguyen was. He's still the boss. Cleaning toilets and digging graves didn't change who Chuck Farah was. Moving tables and vacuuming floors after an event doesn't change who Dave Troutman is. He's still an elder and he's still a leader in this church. Fixing toilets and sinks here at TCF doesn't change who Jim Garrett is. Doing these kinds of things doesn't change who you are either. But what it does do is make us blessed. That's what Jesus said. Doing these things makes us blessed. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the amazing example of servant leadership and humility that Jesus brought to his disciples and to us, Father, through your word these couple thousand years later. We pray, Father, that we would all examine our hearts, Lord, and be willing and obedient in what you cause us to do, what you've given us to do. Father, that we would be blessed because we stoop and we obey. Lord, that we would never look at anything as being beneath us to do, but, Father, we would look at everything as our humble way of serving others and by serving others, serving you. Father, we know that we are not greater than our master, and if our master can serve in this way, so can we. So we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help each of us apply this to our hearts and our lives in the way that you would have us do. And we thank you for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.